I genuinely think it was like, what could I do that's not pedophilia, that's not something I haven't said already? Oh, bestiality. But I don't want to put my whole dick in that pond. Let's just put a toe in. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this episode of Film Tank, we discuss the new film by Drew Goddard, which is Bad Times at the El Royale. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everyone, and welcome in to episode 171 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Nick Cheney. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you. And Toussaint Egan. Howdy, partners. How are we doing tonight? Okay. Thank you for uh, rejoining us, Toussaint. We weren't sure you were going to be back after your absence last week. But yeah, I got he lost. He was here. He was here in, as, as Venom. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I meant when I got lost. Uh, I got lost in the darkness. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like a turd in the wind. Oh, that's interesting. It's unfortunately oh. in the film. Wow. I, uh, I'm never going to watch that film. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing back the episode. Sure you are. Yeah, I am. I know you are because you weren't on it, so you want to hear what you missed. Well, yeah. And you also want to hear how much we talked about you. Well, yeah, and I also listen back to our episodes because they're fun. Sure you do. I do. Okay. Yeah. You're the one. Uh, <laughs> what the fuck? So today we are going to talk about bad times at the El Royale. But have a good time here at Film Take. Am I right, guys? Am I right? <laughs> That's how we're all feeling about that. <laughs> So that film, uh, directed by and written by Drew Goddard, as Toussaint flips the bird to everybody, including our listeners, uh, which stars, I mean, the biggest name here is Jeff Bridges. There are other people like Crims, 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 Crims Hensworth, Crimson Hensworth, That'd be a cool nickname. Yeah. Chris Hemsworth and Dakota Johnson. John uh, Ham. Yeah. Yeah. He's here for a little bit. What the? Well, he's kind of like the main de facto character in a way until he's not. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> which is forty minutes in, yeah. but that's okay. Yeah. Anyways, but if it wasn't for him, a lot of shit wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Just saying. Okay. Just saying. Compose yourself. Well, yeah. I mean, if it wasn't for this action, the rest of the movie wouldn't have happened. It's I like, mean, like okay, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't make me come over there. Continue, Alex. <laughs> I can't. I'm speechless. I'm left without speech. All right. As Nick has just said the most. Shut down. I, yeah. Any and all arguments. I guess. Yeah, because Nick just said the most basic thing ever about film. <laughs> Call me the scarecrow, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm made a, of straw. A precedes B. I'm just like. Yes. Yeah. If his action didn't happen, the rest of the film could not occur. That is factually correct. Yeah. It's, it's... you just jealous because you didn't think of it first. <laughs> I didn't have to. It's already been thought of first. It's called sequential order. Clearly, you're getting a little heated. 
uh, due to your jealousy, and it's understandable. I've been in this situation before, uh, on my side of the table, not on yours, but uh, we're, j- we're both going to get through it. Wow, this is great. <laughs> now I'm speechless. After, after being shut down a little bit, talking down to your opponent is definitely the way to go. Nick has embraced the current cultural <laughs> really climate what the in America. Fuck? If you believe you're always right, you're never wrong. Yeah. Well, no, some people are. <laughs> Everyone else just It's not the me. people that I'm talking to. That yeah. are Lord. Before we get into talking about bad times at the El Royale and John Hamm, uh, we are going to do one of our favorite segments, one of the only segments we do on here. In all it's honesty. definitely a top four segment I think we've ever done. We've had, we've had maybe four segments. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. It's the, the one we've done the most regularly. There we go. Which is a week in review, uh, just talking about film, television, other media that we've been digesting over the last set of days. Heck yeah. And... Um, so I'll go first. Yeah, you go well, first. Well, you were kind of excited, so I want to hear what you're excited about. Yeah. I'm excited because I do want to uh, talk about my viewing of the new Paul Greengrass film, which is 22 July. That. I did. What's it called? I haven't seen it, but I heard some scolding hot takes. Yeah. But please continue. So uh, the it's film called is... 22 July. So the film uh, is centered around a terrorist attack that takes place in Norway. Is it a biopic? Is it? Is it? It's a true story. Oh, okay. Uh, and it, terrorism exists, Tucson. Even if you want to shut it out, basically I ignore him. Uh, Just like you ignore terrorism. <laughs> uh, roughly eighty people were murdered during this terrorist attack. Oh man! Uh, and most of them were children who were. Uh, basically hunted down by this political... When did this take place? I think I remember what you're talking about. Hmm? In Norway. In Norway, yeah. I it was like that. in 2011, I yeah, think? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, the film is on Netflix, where all other good films go. And I watched it, and I thought it was a very good film. Okay. Uh... The internet uh, has other opinions on uh, this film, and Nick, since you probably have read even more of them, if you want to enlighten us a little bit before I, I talk a little more about it, that would be fine. Sure. I mean, just at a very broad overview, mm-hmm. as someone who hasn't seen the movie, most people are taking uh, offense to the fact that Greengrass, according to them, not mm-hmm. me... Has apparently done nothing other than set out to dramatize something that's very real and probably painful for a lot of people for nothing other than what some people would probably call cheap thrills. Maybe others would call, even if not cheap, still thrills nonetheless. Mm-hmm. That's, like, that's been the main okay. uh, thing I've heard against the movie. Okay. Uh, my opinion is, is that's not a great reading. Um, I think if you want to... <laughs> Uh, if you wanted to look at films in Paul, poor taste by Paul Greengrass, I would actually say United 93 is probably More. closer to that. Oh, wow. He's that guy. He is. Yeah. He's done yeah, a he's lot no of stranger very, yeah. to this category. I mean, that Captain Phillips was the same kind But at of least thing. Captain Phillips, and I haven't actually seen 93 or this, uh, uh-huh. at least Captain Phillips, by the title alone, is clearly about the victim and not the... Uh, 
action, so to speak. Yeah. Um, anyway. I will say this. So I am not somebody who lives in Norway, nor was I involved in the event. So That's good. It's true. It's good to put I that on the record. Obviously, no personal stakes in this. That being said, um, I don't. It's tough because I don't. I guess I just don't really see it. Like I, I, I understand, but at the same time, <laughs> I just can't grab gravitate towards. You know what? That. That's the most you can do. You can try to empathize with the fact that a lot of people are going to take offense to this, um, and I. Who knows? I might be offended by it. Um, just, just. I mean, just, as long as you don't watch it and cheer on atrocity, you know, you as the viewer are not complicit. complicit. Yeah, right. So, but the unless the film did you? No, okay. <laughs> just like throwing your pop. Yeah, I had to think about that for a minute. Yeah, no, I the the film does not really take a. Like a stance that like he was right or anything like that. Um, that's good. And it also doesn't. The film about him though. I'm genuinely asking. Um, the film. Did they try to quote unquote examine him, even if it doesn't want to? It tries to examine uh, somebody who did something like this, not necessarily specifically him. Mm. Mm. Um, and also, too, after the beginning part of the film, when the main action takes place, which is basically the entire first act of the film, um, we spend a lot more time with the other people here who were involved in this, uh, including the person who has to de- has to be his defense attorney, uh, a lot of the victims from the camp that was being terrorized. And the recovery that they were going through, and then obviously the uh, the court case uh, that ended up involving uh, numerous victims, and also uh, this. I, I don't want to say it was just a very elongated process, pretty much of just dumping on all of the. Here's why this person should be in prison forever, uh, but at any rate, I just thought it was an interesting film. I thought the the uh, the uh, the premise of it and the idea of was it English language? It was okay. Yeah, which yeah. I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, but that was one other thing. It was like that other people were adding to the. Clearly, he just wanted to make an American. I just anyway, I just wanted to it's know. It's not a blockbuster. I mean, it's it's uh, no no anyway. Uh, and the, the the main thing I guess I will take away from the criticisms of the film is that the film has a very strong message for people standing up and being against what the terrorist was trying to you know have infiltrate, which is a very like afraid of. Um, minorities and afraid of different religions and Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, propaganda, which is very prevalent uh, in 2018, which I feel like that's another reason why this film completely works. Um, Probably the reason why it was made. I'm sure. Uh, But at the same time, it's a very well done Paul Greengrass film uh, that has a lot of fantastic moments. And yeah, some of the terrorist uh, action is there completely for shock value. 
But at the same time, um, yeah, it is. Because uh, this terrible person went and shot 70 children. At the very least, is it safe to say that you barely knew about this event before you saw the movie? That would be correct. So just on a de facto whatever level, you now know about it. And that in and of itself is a good thing because I think we should always – myself, because I barely know about it. Like we shouldn't be – Aware of these kind of things. And, and it's been a number of years since I remember reading about this, and so that's why I had to ask to clarify. But I think it like, would have been an easy story to miss. Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. I'm saying as far as like... As sort of like how it parallels to group, our... Depending on your access to media, depending on your... This was not a September 11th, I think all TVs... But you, the, but the reason why this story was covered in America is because of its sort of parallels with the proliferance of like mass shootings in America. No, I'm not yeah. saying it wasn't covered right, at right. all. I'm yeah. just saying I think some people could have easily missed. You, you, yeah. you, I mean, you hear terrorist murders people every day right. in some capacity, so this just could have just That's what I mean. Like, this yeah. felt like any other one you would have read, so therefore you wouldn't have really remembered the details of what this one was. Uh, but at the same time, this, I think, does a fantastic job. Oh, First of all, I think it's just a well-put-together film. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it really does create this idea, at least in my reading, that the characters who are on the other side of the terrorists, the victims and the people who are just moving out with their lives, this has changed their lives forever. Um, but at the same time, they're all still alive and trying to be good people. Um, and the terrorist is going to go to jail and never come out, which is yeah, fine. Um, also, too, uh, one of the females who was a victim who goes and speaks, and I'm sure this was completely made up, but that's totally fine. Uh, so she is, she is, I can't remember what country she's from, but she is not white. And she lives in Norway. And basically... She ends her comments about the terrorist attack uh, at the court case with saying the phrase, I don't understand what is so frightening about me. Um, And I thought that was wonderful because I think that's some, uh, I think that's prevailing sentiment. uh, I would say among a lot of cultures. It is, but boy, I don't think we hear enough of it in this country to be totally honest with you. Yeah. I think that gets buried because of all of the noise that surrounds the rest of what's going on right now. Like the the idea of we hear over and over again about that people think that these people are bad, but if you stop to, you know, look at things, it's just like this is just another person. So um there are a lot of moments that were really good and it's a film on Netflix that isn't terrible, so I think anyone should give it the time and uh, and give it a watch. I know that uh, there's a, is it, is, there's a Gareth Evans film on Netflix now. Apostle, yeah. I hear that's uh, not as not as good as one would expect. Hmm. I've yeah. been hearing quite a, a lot of good things about it. It's Her, Netflix, so I yeah. I mean, that's, assume it's I would take be it terrible. with a grain of salt. Yeah, but I'm still actually it's the first Netflix film in a while that I've been genuinely going to watch oh, yeah, it, it, has, sure. it has like a, a name behind it. it has some sort of prestige and precedence to it it's just like I've, I've 
I've heard some lukewarm takes from people across the board who are both enthusiasts for his films, the Raid films, and those who are sort of just kind of like in the middle of the road. They're sort of converging. But that. what did they think about his segment in VHS 2? Uh, I mean, the ones who liked <laughs> um, um, I think the biggest thing for me is that both that and this uh, feel like perhaps a step in the right direction for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we watched Hold the Dark, and that was not good. No. Uh, but Although I'd rather them do more stuff like that. Yeah. Because at least that felt bad in a weird way. Like, oh. <laughs> well, no, I mean, like, like, oh, they allowed this to happen. And mm-hmm. whether I, even if I dislike something that gives me that reaction, mm-hmm. I'd rather more of that be made. I guess I'm at least intrigued because you've got Jeremy Saunier, Paul Greengrass, Gareth Evans, Martin Scorsese. I mean, they're actually going for yeah. filmmakers instead of just Adam Sandler. Right, and right. Although Adam Sandler is going to have his new uh, special out uh, in a week. And Perfect. What my cinephile friend is so special about it, you may ask? No, I didn't ask. Paul Thomas Anderson shot it. Really? Yep. Wow. Paul. Did you like owe him a favor from Punch Drunk Love or something? Probably. <laughs> okay. No, seriously, the PTA loves to do that shit in between movies. Like, in between, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Vice and uh, Thread, he was uh, shooting music videos for Haim. I mean, he, Oh, yeah, those very, are great. Yeah, he very clearly likes to kind of uh, do what I would consider... Work for hire with people he respects. I'm not saying he's like an Adam Sandler like fanatic, but, but I'm, he's worked with him. I'm guessing he, yeah, was, especially because no offense, but you're shooting a new stand-up special, which a he hasn't done in forever, and b is not one of his stupid. Movies. I was gonna say if it was like Sandy Wexler, no, he probably no. wouldn't put his name. Next I think to he that. was just like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll shoot it for you, buddy. He's not directing it, but he was there, uh, you know, directing it on the floor, so to speak. Interesting. So, yeah, very good. I'll probably watch it. Anyways, I think 22 July is worth uh, checking out for anybody who's interested in seeing it. <laughs> that sounds a lot like 22 Jump Street, and that's unfortunate. Yep. Mm, sorry. It is. I'll go next. Okay. Uh, this past week, I haven't had the chance to watch a lot of stuff because I've just been busy okay, with schoolwork and oh. uh, basically just writing and stuff. But I have managed to uh, get back into watching an anime series, the one anime series the season that I've been really excited for, which is the fifth season of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Oh. Um, if you guys are not familiar... Sounds bizarre. If you're not familiar with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, uh, the easiest way that I can sort of condense it, because a lot of weird shit happens in it, it is bizarre, Nick. Mm. Um, it is uh, a generation-spanning story, like, uh, about a family of ultra-buff... Like Cloud Atlas. Scientists, archaeologists, and martial artists with hearts of gold fighting megalomaniacal immortal vampires and serial killers with familiar spirits and special breathing techniques. Did you say this was anime? This is anime. That was a joke. This is anime, yeah. Um, and so I basically have been looking forward to this one because like, this... Anime is based off of a manga series that's been going on since 1987. is still ongoing today. Uh, it's very popular um, in Japan and now outside of Japan, too. And this fifth season takes place in Italy, where uh, every single season takes place with a different member of the Joestar family and how they got their powers and like what they're actually doing with them. And this season is about uh, Giorgio Giorano. 
who is sort of like the son of one of the main antagonists of this series and how he basically comes into the realization of his own powers and is now trying to become the capo of a local gang in order to basically stop the drug trade in his local like Italian town. And it's very fucking good. It's it's only we're only two episodes into this season and it's already like And how is it airing stateside? Um it's airing stateside via Crunchyroll, which is a streaming service that I, I subscribe to, but you can also watch it for free with commercials and stuff like that. But, oh, okay. Yeah, but uh I would definitely I would recommend watching the rest of the series before getting to this one because you're just gonna be fucking confused more than usual. Um but yeah, I love it. So that's it. Alrighty. Uh Alex, one time, maybe a couple weeks ago, I erroneously told you that I had in my head seen at least one movie from every canonical horror franchise since like the seventies or so. And I forgot about With the exception of Poltergeist at that time. At right? that time, Poltergeist. Yes. But I forgot about one other thing. Okay. But I rectified that this last week. And okay. I watched the first two entries of uh, the Chucky series. Oh, Child's Play. I, yeah. Oh, wow. So watched... That scared the shit out of me as a kid. Yeah. I... Child's Play is really randomly having a lot of... Uh... Resurgence? Yes, yes. But it's having a lot of, like, under-the-radar films come out recently. Yeah, they're they're doing the kind of direct-to-DVD. Mm-hmm. But... From what I understand, and I'll probably watch it because I bought the set of all seven that have come out for like 20 bucks. Um, from what I understand, actually, because it's just a killer doll, like the direct-to-DVD uh, installments have been pretty much what fans want from it. So mm-hmm. it's not like it's whatever. Fun fact. Um, the animatronic uh, apparatus for Chucky was actually appropriated um, to basically be the centerpiece of Daft Punk's Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Uh, music video. That is a fun fact. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Next time you watch that video, you realize like, oh, that's the that's the Chucky animatronic. Huh. I'll make you know, sure to remember that. <laughs> you know what I got to admit? After I watched the first movie, that was the first time I had like finished the movie and jumped straight to special features mm-hmm. like in a while where I was curious. Like, you know, that was like 1980, whatever. I'm like, how did they do Chucky? Like, I knew... It was animatronics, but seeing it in person was pretty cool. Yeah, like to think that they would never do that again is really sad because that was what made it so terrifying. Because it had this uncanny valley sort of <laughs> aspect about it, yeah. where it was so advanced, but it was just just a a margin off. Right, but it it, it works, and um, and also just hearing how they did it, as far as like how they had like five or six different dolls so that way throughout the movie the plastic would kind of turn more and more into flesh depending on which section of the movie you're in which you know it's like and it's not like the movie stops to point that out like oh like yeah they say you're becoming more human but they don't like point out you know that part of it so uh it was fascinating and uh tom savini was actually a part of some of the special effects not the animatronics mm-hmm. but some of the gore and whatnot so yeah. it was just a, it was a lot of fun but both those movies child's play one and two were a lot of fun and uh, I still think the first one is probably a classic for me. Yeah. Um, like, I would rewatch that any day. And even if Chucky later, well, from 2 especially on, became more notable than, like, the movies themselves because of him turning into 
uh, I would say a much better version of like a Freddy Krueger because technically those series only got better probably in a way mm-hmm. when Chucky became more maniacal and silly and whatever. I will say the first one when even as someone who like I watched that movie for the first time last week with the knowledge that there would be six more films across you know a couple decades and that Chucky is a little asshole who talks or whatever and yet the central conceit of the first child's play is is he or isn't he alive yeah. for the first 60 minutes and even knowing the answer to that question the movie was still effectively creepy and fun and kind of terrifying now the second one i think the second one is the one that sticks out the the clearest in my mind that was the one that it's a more technically accomplished though the the finale takes place in the actual factory yes. house with the other dolls yes. that was absolutely fucking terrifying and there's like a, a good it's like a good 25 minute sequence like oh, yeah. i thought this just watching it for the first time i thought that was going to be like they got there so therefore we're ready for one last but no they like do like three good fake deaths in a good way like they just keep up in the ante as to how many times they can like kill Kill Chucky before he gets truly killed off for that installment so Mm -hmm. anyway I enjoyed both of those films Uh, the only other thing I'm going to mention is Unfriended Dark Web I really enjoyed the first one it's not great and I don't know that I'd like defend it but I'm a sucker for that kind of gimmick where you get to experience uh, technology uh, as we see it through our screens and whatnot. And so even if it's bad, I was probably going to enjoy it. But you know what? I had spooky fun with the first one. But the second one, uh, Unfriended Dark Web, which has no connection to the first movie. Like, Mm. there is no through line other than the gimmick itself, which is that you see a a laptop screen. Mm. Um, It trades the first film's spooky, supernatural happening, which I enjoyed, for something far more darkly realistic. Um, so, for example, in the first movie, there were moments when, you know, someone would try to, uh, or not try to, like, a Facebook message would get deleted, and that's not, not possible, and, of course, the character would comment on that, and it would make them look bad because they had said something that they didn't, that they were supposed to have said, whatever, but it was, like, kind of preying on your worst fears of, like, you, you're not able to control technology because it's not yours once you, you know, put it into the ether. Yep. But the second movie is takes that one step further, and instead of paranormaling the shit out of it, it says that that is somebody else's property once you put that out there. And that's the more terrifying than any supernatural monster who could kill you because, you know, the, you know a spooky phantom Skype call is spooky in the first film, but it's nothing compared to what if someone took, because you very publicly make it, visible your photo and your name and put it on a terrorist manifesto and you know and that is not an actual scene from the movie yeah, but, but still yeah. but that's something similar because i'm yeah. trying not to spoil it right, right. uh but how easy that is to happen Damn. by anyone who has half a predilection for just evilness right, yeah. <laughs> um and man, does this movie succeed uh, at every corner doing that, mostly because the first 60 minutes are actually kind of set up. And if that sounds laborious, then it's probably not the movie for you. But I swear the last 30 minutes are just knocking down all these dominoes that were set up in that first 60 minutes where we truly get to see these characters interact with one another. And unravel. Yeah, and unravel. And the way that they... 
uh, interact with each other just completely transcends one window and whatnot. And I and I kind of love seeing how realistic that was. I mean, we've all been there where you have a group chat going here, but then you have a private chat going there. That's tension between what you're saying here and yet how you're visibly and visually presenting yourself there. And yet all the while, you know, a simple computer crash can accidentally send the wrong message if it does it at the wrong time. And so on and so forth. That's the tip of the iceberg of what this movie conveys. Mm. And by the end of it, and by the last 30 minutes, when the full, uh, shall we say, uh, full picture of this movie is revealed, uh, everything is way too late for any of these characters to stop anything. And you just, almost like Final Destination-wise, they have made all the choices they could have possibly made uh, that are irreversible. And so all that's left to do as a viewer is watch it. Which in and of itself, is another metatextual mm-hmm. uh, comment on complicity and the way we are still attached to our screen. Because we see things like cyberbullying and whatnot, and we pretty much accept it at face value. And sort as, of tacit consent by, yeah. by, by virtue of our um, observation of it. Yeah. Our continued observation of it, I mean. Agreed. And so I just thought this movie was incredibly smart. I mean, it's dumb as a box of rocks when it comes to, like, everything in this movie is not apropos as far as can actually happen, Mm. but nothing happens because of magic. It's just, you have to go with the fact that these programs have already been written, and first of all, I think Probably half of them have. We just don't know that. The other half, yeah, that's stretching it a bit far. But that's better than voodoo, you know, whatever. It's yeah. it's just trying to take a, you know, whatever. Um, but I got to say, the last five minutes when it's revealed that Jack from Twitter is the real uh, evil genius. No, I'm kidding. I believe that. <laughs> um, but no, I seriously recommend it. And you could skip the first one if you really don't want to. Like, if you can only watch one, definitely watch the second one. Mm-hmm. But I do think the first one is also kind of fun in a very... Uh, hokey way the first one has a lot more of like jump scares but kind of fun jump scares this one is way more like watching two girls one cup where you hear about that thing you were told not to click on it you click on it anyway you end up get what you deserve yes i don't know what you're talking about okay but it's that kind of horror. I don't mean that literally in the sense that there's nothing in this movie that is visually. People are going to watch it and be like, I was really expecting. Yeah. You lied to me. So you anyway. Just take a frame and you splice it in like Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, I People genuinely. don't know that they saw it, but they did. <laughs> I recommend uh, Unfriended Dark Web. Okay. Even with that stupid title. Mm, but yeah, technically, no that title is accurate. Yeah. Yep. Very good. Good stuff. Well, uh, the main film you'll be talking about on this episode. You had to buff it for a sec. I did. That, that's a well put. Yeah. That happens in Unfriended all the time, and it's very spooky. Yeah, I know, right? Dark whip. Uh, do people's phones also run out of battery? Those are, that's a fun No, movie. the phones are very nicely charged in that movie, because mm. uh, those are life and death situations at some point. It was the same thing in Nerve, where uh, people could run data for uh, 20 straight hours and their phones would not die. Hell yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, most of it takes place in people's homes, mm. so you would think that they probably just I, yeah. plugged it in. I, I'm, I'm good with it. It's fine. I know what I'm getting into with those kind of movies, so yeah. I'm not going to get caught up on... God damn it. <laughs> His phone would be dead. Fucking bullshit. They shut my... I was just going to say that. God damn it. <laughs> so, uh, Bad Times at the El Royale was uh, written and directed by Drew Goddard. 
Uh, and if you think you've heard of Drew Goddard, he's... You are wrong. Done. <laughs> you are dead wrong. He's done quite a few things. Mostly, he uh, wrote uh, a lot of early episodes. Uh, not wrote a lot, but he wrote episodes for Buffy, Buffy and Angel. And Angel and yep. Alias. Yep. Uh, and also wrote films, uh, including Lost and Kevin in the Woods, which he also directed. Uh, the uh, World War Z film with uh, Brad Pitt oh, and The Martian. Oh, wow. He's all over the place. He's really all over the board right He's there. He's one of the best genre artists, I think, uh, writers in uh, television media. And also okay. in the, uh, probably in the glory years of the uh, series, he also wrote nine episodes of Lost. Yeah. In oh. the, uh, the middle part of the uh, series. If you've written for Buffy, Angel, Lost, and sorry, but I'm going to say it, Dollhouse. I like Dollhouse. Uh, I do too. Yeah. Uh, then I think you're one of the best uh, genre writers out there, personally. Because he wrote good episodes of that, not just like yeah. Uh, yeah. whatever. That's fair. Yeah, uh, and as I mentioned, he did also direct Cabin in the Woods, which is, was really his first time out. And now he is directing and writing Bad Times at the El Royale. So the film stars Jeff Bridges along with Dakota Johnson, Chris Hemsworth, John Hamm, Cynthia Erivo, and also to uh, some other smaller people show up here, including uh, Lewis Pullman, Shea Wingham. Uh, Kaylee Spini? Shea Wiggum, the doctor? Yes. I, you know, halfway through that scene, I'm like, that looks like Shea Wiggum. And then the person who I didn't know who was in it, but I definitely, like, pulled early, but yeah. I wasn't sure, Nick was Offerman. Nick Offerman. Yeah. yeah. I only knew that because I heard it beforehand. Uh, literally, like, what scene he was in and everything. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have figured out just because the camera was always at a distance during that scene. Mm-hmm. And he is in the... He has, oh, then he, the he has a mask on, yeah. so, yeah. But when I, like, I, I was like, I think that's him, but it doesn't seem like the kind of movie he'd be in in a really minor role, but then yeah. there he was, so that's there great. Was. So Scott the film Lynch. centers around seven strangers, each with a secret to bury, Ooh. who meet at a <laughs> Lake Tahoe hotel, the Spooky. rundown El Royale. Over the course of one evening, everyone will have a last shot at redemption before everything goes to hell. Well, Starting to get pictures, aren't you? Sue, I would say Toussaint was the one who wanted us to, for sure, do an episode on this film. Mm-hmm. So I think he should get the first crack. I think he should get fucked. Oh, well, thank you, friend. Just um, like that wolf. Yep. Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll open it up Ow. for this. So I saw the trailer for this, and I thought it looked cool. I thought, you know, we should probably... Like, Is that what go. you're reviewing this off of? <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm, <laughs> re- I'm reviewing off. I the- saw the trailer for this, so here are my thoughts. Yeah. As a <sighs> okay, continue. So I saw the trailer for this, and I thought it looked. I cool. I really like the Big Lebowski. And so I was shut the fuck up, both of you. Anyway, anyway, um, thanks, Nick. So going into the theater and watching the film, I was like, I I was primed to enjoy it. I thought it looked sort of like a. I don't know, like a 1960s, 1970s riff off of the the sort of like Hateful Eight sort of formula. And that's pretty much what it is. And I walked out of it really enjoying it. I think that all of the performances by the principal actors were great. Like Jeff Bridges was great. Um, John Hamm was great for his time. Uh, Dakota Johnson, you know, she doesn't really like – she doesn't really stick out for me for a lot of things. I mean I've never watched the Fifty Shades of Grey series, so I really don't – 
she's not really on my radar, but I enjoyed her in this. First of all, she's not on your radar. Okay, she's not on my radar. Um, and Chris Hemsworth, uh, I thought, had a really good turn in this as as the the antagonist. And, and you know, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting to me that he would be in this film because I think it that it's a it's totally a favor to Drew Goddard for the fact that Cabin in the Woods was supposed to be like one of his first roles like back before like he came into like major prominence but it, the reason why it came out much much later after like Thor was because of just like what was going on with the studio and the production house at that time well it literally got shelved because yeah. they, they couldn't bank on it and then Thor came out and they're like oh Thor's in our movie yeah. and then they released it yeah so I, I I think that it was interesting for him to come back and like be in another film with him because it's sort of it feels like you know you did me a solid back then I'm going to do you a solid right now so yeah and he's, and he's great in this um, I I like the mystery of it I like the music I love the music in this um and I like the setting. It's it's pretty good. I, I like the, the first act, the second act. The beginning of the third act, when Chris Hemsworth's character is, like, basically corralling all of the characters together and basically trying to, like, psychologically, like, like unpeel them, as, as, as it were. Yeah, that went on a beat too long. That went it? on way too long. And long I got long final act, yeah. so to speak. But when the action finally kicks into, in, in, into first gear... And like shit starts to hit the fan. And I was like, okay, I'm enjoying this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was a it was a much needed improvement over the first part of that that third act. I feel like it just still could have been like a little bit shorter. But overall, I really enjoyed this movie, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys uh, took away from it. Uh, I was a big fan of this. I it's not that I didn't think I was not going to like it, but from the trailer. Uh, I thought that this could definitely go either way. Yeah. Sorry, Nick is just being a child as per usual. Yep. Uh, I I just didn't know what to think about this film. Mm. I, I'm I'm very lukewarm on Cabin in the Woods. That's fair. And I thought this looked like it could be really good and really fun to watch. Yeah. But at the same time, I thought it looked like it could get caught up in its own way. And I'm very happy that it didn't. And what I think I liked most about this film is that um, the editing in this film is actually fucking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that this film paces itself up until that uh, final scene is pretty much spot on. And for a film like this... I did not expect that from it, so I think I was pleasantly surprised. Um, it, it, so you enjoyed the sort of like vignette structure of the. I did. I mean, I thought I thought that that uh, got a little meh uh, after a while, mm-hmm. but but I didn't think it was bad, right. and it was at least committed to it. At the same time, uh, I was a little worried that after the first two, it was just going to kind of fade away. Yeah, uh, and for the most part, it didn't. Yeah. So yeah, that's fine. Uh, Again, I have to go back to the editing here. I think the editing is what makes this film as good as it is. Because it, the the fact that the composition of shots could happen and then it would get edited together so flawlessly um, is wonderful. And actually, one of my favorite scenes uh, has nothing to do with the plot, really. Um, but the early scene when Cynthia Erivo's character 
is performing uh, backup for the singer, and she gets that creepy British guy. Yeah, uh, the guy from A Star Is Born. It, Not literally, but <laughs> oh yeah, no, but actually he's. Uh, very awkward, sexual, and just not comfortable. But everything that happens up until that is what um, is what Edgar Wright was going for in the intro to Baby Driver. But it actually just landed. Mm. Um, it was you know a bass player hitting the note just as the camera gets to him, or a trumpet player starting their solo as soon as the camera turns to the trumpet, like bell bottoms. It just, it just it just felt like it was perfectly composed and also perfectly edited to work flawlessly together. And there were multiple moments like that throughout the film, even in things that felt forced. Like when John Hamm is walking from room to room, that felt a little like, okay, I get it. Like mm. we're doing this. You didn't like you did. You really like that? Loved or, it. You really liked it? Okay. Yeah, but I'll get into that. Um I liked it as well, but at the same time, it was uh, I I felt like there just wasn't enough meat on the bone so that's for that. What I'll say is basically we're seeing the same scene. I think because I liked it because it didn't try to cut around it to make it more, which is fine. Like it was a one take scene in which not every second is important, but in that instance, we are given all the information we possibly can, which is technically a divergence from a lot of the other scenes, which is interesting because we think we're being given everything, literally because of how it's edited, until we realize that even one character's perspective is not yeah. enough. So, anyway. Um, Rashomon. I... This is not as... as... Intelligent as Rashomon, but it's good. Yeah. Um, okay. I will say this about that scene. Um, that is where everything comes together. But the idea that every character in this film is basically forming a straight line uh, when John Hamm's character gets shot, I think is fascinating. Mm. And I mean, obviously, it's not like the greatest put together thing ever. But at the same no, time, but... the, um, you would have no way of knowing that when you see it first play out, but after no. the third time, it's like, holy shit, they are all just right there in the same exact... And I would say this, there is nothing tricky about that sequence. Like, it is not like uh, Drew Goddard goes out of his way to conceal that. It's just, in its clever use of editing and uh, just composition, we're taught as filmgoers to, you know... To believe what we see is on the frame is what we get, even though we could have started to piece together. We knew that there were windows. We knew that there were, you know, whatever. So it's like when we find out, for example, that the the bellboy, whatever his, whatever his name is, uh, Miles. shot Miles. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, why didn't I actually think that there could be someone on the other side of that? Like, we knew that, and this is a twisty movie. But humans' but... brains are stupid. So. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so I thought that part of it was fantastic. And the way that the film... Uh, continues to build on itself through the first two acts, I think uh, really works wonders. And I actually think will be benefited on a repeat viewing where it seems like since you know what's coming, it wouldn't be, but I actually think it'll be the reverse and it'll actually be even better on a repeat viewing, which I'll find out at some point. Uh, overall though, I thought this was a really well done film and I was pleasantly surprised by how good it was. And also too, um, how much I actually cared about some of the characters here. Like, I didn't really care about Jeff Bridges. Like, I kind of did, and I like, felt bad for him. But at the same time, like, he's not the greatest guy ever. Um, 
But Cynthia Arrivo's character, uh, she cared, and you kind of like cared by proxy. Of that. She was one of the better leading characters I've seen in a while. Just... Well, and she's got a year coming to her because she's in this, and apparently, well, not actually, <laughs> she's in um, this new Steve McQueen movie, uh, Widows. Yes, where she's supposed to be fantastic, and like for your first two films in one year to be like, I would think. You know, this kind of performance and a movie of that pedigree with Widows. It's pretty mm-hmm. good. But what I loved so much about her performance here is that she's given a fantastic singing performance throughout this film. Which, mm-hmm. is that actually her singing or not? Oh, that I don't know. Okay. I will say I thought she sang a few too many times. Okay. The first time she did it, I thought it was amazing. Well, no. The time she did it in the room, mm-hmm. I thought that was obviously fantastic clever the time when she was doing it when john ham was spying on her like that was good but i felt like toward the approaching the third act at one point she was doing it and i felt like we were just kind of like okay we get it yeah yeah i I hear you because we just stay with that moment and i'm like you know we've we've done this twice already Uh, I just I, I thought she gave a great performance, and at the same time, I thought she was just the best part of the film for me, um, which is great because I knew really nothing about her going into this, which I'm assuming most people did as well. So, uh, move on to Nick, but uh, overall, it's going to be mostly positive reactions for me for this film. Yeah, I this is a two hour and twenty minute movie, and I thought the first hour was like borderline masterful. Hmm. I thought everything after that was okay. I didn't dislike it, but it never I never got on the same high that I did after John Hamm was dead. Not because I loved his character, even though I actually very much enjoyed his performance. Uh, at the beginning, I was like, man, this guy has a really shitty accent. And then I was like, oh, that makes yes! sense. Yes, and that's why I loved it. Because yeah. I was thinking the same thing, especially as someone who loves John Hamm and thinks Mad Men and Don Draper is one of the greatest characters of all time, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, wow, they really wanted him to ham it up. Uh, <laughs> but when you know the extent of it, I'm just like, ah, that's even better. Yeah. Um, but pretty much by the time he dies, which I'm not saying shouldn't have happened, uh, the audience is left without any character who has any kind of agency to try and work on the outside of the story. And which I, is kind of the point, obviously. I'm not saying it's not. Yeah. But my interest started oh, okay. to wane a little bit. And I think the epitome of that is because – or is exemplified when Chris Hemsworth show up, who I liked his performance – but the first 20 minutes of his entrance is him just asking them questions to uh, for answers to questions we already know, asking the wrong characters the questions themselves, and him trying to figure out a mystery that I don't buy his character is really that interested in. I never quite understood why he cared so much about anything and why he wouldn't just kill everybody on the spot, leave the place with the money and uh, the sister and just like I, you know, his whole mega, you know, whatever, maniacal, yeah, evil, whatever, doesn't for me carry weight. Considering we only saw one scene with him that lasted about two seconds, in which he showed his ass, and you know, I just I had another scene with him too, like of of D. He's a pretty minor character. He, in this. what other scene? We show him the one time when oh, okay, the other scene where he gives his. 
His Colt speech. speech. Yeah, okay. Skull Pete. Yeah. Um, I guess that too. I already forgot about that. Uh, oh. I, and that just felt like he, like he's a good actor, and I think he's given a good performance. But that didn't tell us anything other than he's a cult leader, and he has cult followers. Yeah, and there's really not much to say yeah. about cult leaders. They're all very much the same. Yeah. So, so <laughs> it's just when he had him like strapped to the table, and he's like trying to get to the bottom of it, and he's so angry. I'm just like. You know, um, you're not personally invested in this, so I don't know why you're pretending to be. <laughs> um, having said that, I agree with Toussaint where I thought, like, once the action took over, it got to be a better yeah. resolution. Uh, I absolutely love the final kind of connection slash resolution between uh, Jeff Bridges' character and Miles and how he gives him the confession and yeah. absolves him of his sin, which I felt was like the whole obvious – I mean, I'm not – unique here but obviously the kind of the theme of the movie and the you know your your fake persona is as real as you want it to be to get the means to an end that you want to achieve when miles actually admitted what he did like yeah. what his what what his thing was like I almost thought this was going to take an entire 180 turn into like psycho Norman Bates territory, and I was like, "No, this is actually no, this is actually like playing to like the period of what's actually going on." At so here's right what now. I'll say about the Miles revelation. Yeah, um, I pretty much liked it. However, I thought that was the one time when the film was weirdly edited and not. Are we are we talking about just general things now, or are you still finishing up your? Oh yeah, like my problem? biggest thing is the first half was amazing. The second half, I thought. Had problems, and I yet I still enjoyed it. So okay. that's my general thoughts okay. about Miles mm-hmm. and his past when he says, I've killed so many people. Or 116. What a, yeah. yeah. So here's the thing. That f- scene landed flat, which was probably mostly on me. Like, I think the second time I watch it, I'll totally be on board with it. But I thought that was weirdly edited because... Of the nature of his movie is that we're seeing a lot of people at their worst in some ways, you yeah. know, like Jeff Bridges or, you know, whatever. You, you're you're impersonating priests, you're killing people, you're leading cults, whatever. So when he says, I've, I've killed, you know, however many people, and then we flash to him in Vietnam, I genuinely got confused for a second. Okay. So that by the time that scene was over and I knew exactly emotionally what he meant, it was a little too late for myself to have had that moment work for me because when we cut to that scene... Like, everything else in the movie, we're being treated to, quote-unquote, new information. Like, you know, we're literally, like, being told on the conveyor belt that, you know, a new uh, motivation is being, you know, delivered to us. And we're like, oh, what's this? Um, What's this? What's this? When we cut to him in Vietnam, and I don't know why, but the editing and the scene of him shooting people in Vietnam looks so weird that I thought he was shooting anybody and everybody, like, including his own soldiers. Mm -hmm. Like, and I don't think that's what was actually supposed to be conveyed. I think it was supposed to be that he was just a normal soldier who killed a lot of people. I think he's a sniper. Yeah, Yeah. which I totally get now. It's not like I'm Mm -hmm. like, this is the movie problem or my problem. But just the way it went headfirst into that, Mm -hmm. where we just see him literally, what I want to call, like, Call of Duty crouching and just going pew, 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 pew with no real uh, discern. Um, Fucking sniper scum. The problem is before that scene, we were told that Miles is this weak and heroin addict and, you know, whatever. So it's so hard to build up the characterization of fucking sharpshooter 
in the span of one millisecond that that seemed to not quite work for me in a way that it should have. Emotionally afterwards, I, I get it and I appreciated it, but I still think that that flashback is a little clumsy. Yeah. So, anyway. Um. I'll agree on the flashback. I think the story choice is actually fucking great. Absolutely. And I like the moment we got out of it as to like him atoning for it. And, and it made the rest of the movie make more sense when he's like, I haven't told you. And I'm like, well, you, you're a hero with that. You know, like you're already making connections that are not what he's talking about. I, I, I think everything regarding it just makes so much sense. I mean, the idea of him watching all of the coverage uh, about Vietnam and also to him being a heroin addict after all the heroin that was floating around during yeah. Vietnam. I mean, it, it all just made and, sense. And it made sense why such a meek person, I say meek just as far as his persona, right. um, would accept a job like this, which I'm sure literally does not phase him whatsoever. It's just quiet. Yeah. It's just far away. I actually quiet. am interested in that because I actually think he may have been put there, but that's okay. Oh, you mean like recruited? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean that. But I'm saying that's why he would have even said yes to it, okay. so to speak. So I'm with you. Like it could have been even more dastardly, as far as organized crime meets the government, and you yeah, know, vice sure. versa. Oh yeah, absolutely. and it's and it's very. Um, I don't want to say mysterious, but it's very vague about management and that, and there's never an explanation about it and who it is and why they do it and whatever. And we don't get told who the man in the, which I felt was a little too, in your face. Like, I get that. I knew from the beginning we weren't going to be told who it was. Mm-hmm. But because they kept saying it over and over, and because more characters started to see the photo and comment, I'm like, oh, you don't know. Like, there's a difference between the golden briefcase and characters stating out loud what they are looking at, mm-hmm. but not telling the audience. Yeah. Which there are. But he's dead. There are three main theories out there on it what, what are the i'm genuinely i don't know so the one is the 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 i think the goal's common reading is that it's jfk uh, the most the the but he's not dead in the movie yes he does oh is he yes. i thought for some weird reason john ham literally makes a comment like jfk is gonna hear about this no he's talking about hoover yeah, he says J. Edgar. Oh, yeah. JFK. I'm, yeah, J. Edgar. Anyway. Duh. Uh, the the <laughs> yes. one that people think makes the most sense is J. Robert Kennedy. Um, right? No, not Robert. Ooh. I think that's right. Yeah. And then the other one that's out there, uh, which most people scoff at, including Tucson, because he already mentioned it, is uh, Martin Luther King. Nick, it can't be Martin Luther King. <laughs> I'm not even saying that as like defending like mm-hmm. the guy himself. Like that, it's already come to light in 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 a- after that historical moment that there were allegations that he um, that he did have a mistress or something like right. that. But here's the thing: this takes place in what year? It's like it's yeah, like, like 19- would they really be that? It's like 1969. 1969. I don't know how many years this is after like. Uh, how many years or months it is after like MLK being assassinated. But if you know anything about what was going on in the 60s and about the FBI and the civil rights movement, uh, Hoover is not going to stick his fucking neck out in order to uh, right. secure so, a, a, a videotape which, of an infidelity which, by Martin Luther which, King. All which right, we, Which we talked about, yeah. myself and you talked about earlier. Again... I don't think John Han knows the videotape is there no. in the first place. True. He's the only one who actually doesn't know of his existence, <laughs> yeah. which is funny because he has almost all the other pieces before anyone else does. Right. His big 
his big um well his downfall is the kidnapping yes but his big revelation is that someone else is spying on the hotel as well uh which is kind of fucked up that there are two different people trying to spy on the same place at the same time robert kennedy was assassinated june i think june 9th to like 1968 okay so and can i just ask really quick are people because i haven't read about any of these series or anything like that are people drawing these connections or i would just say coming up with these possibilities simply based on the fact of the year that it takes place i mean i think they're thinking about like the political like who's the most important man so to speak yeah Okay. Like, I there's mean, no real, like... So, well, while I was watching... There's no f- JFK reference. No, in, well, I, while, while I, think... I was watching the film, I was kind of assuming No, JFK, no, I was just asking, but... like, is there a BuzzFeed article to write about, no. like, oh, in this scene, Not they... Yet. Wow. No, I think that it, 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 it makes sense, given what we are visually told about the history of the El Royale, when, he's go- when Miles is going through his entire speech, and we look at that board, and we see all of those famous people who are there, you see the Rat Pack... That is associated with there. Yeah. So it's like Frank Sinatra and stuff. Like who sort of like moved in those sort of circles like Marilyn Monroe. If you know anything about Marilyn Monroe. Right, and right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. But she was associated with a lot of people. I know she was associated with a lot, of, a lot of people. But how many people would the U.S. government go out of their way to suppress videotape of? Right. Again, uh, the U.S. government knew nothing about the videotape mm. is what we're told throughout True. the film. Is and that, it never even made its way over. Correct. Yeah. Is that yeah. the only reason that anybody knew about it is because they found it after Miles told uh, what's his name where it is. Right. Um, and, and then it gets destroyed, so nobody will ever know about it. Maybe so, yeah. this is... Which, is... which makes it fascinating because it's one of those things that seems like it actually could have happened in real life, but no one will ever know or be able to find out. So I'm, yeah. I'm probably stretching something far more than the context of what is given to us but like just i think this movie kind of begs for that it it begs for that but it's just like just knowing about the historical context of like what was going on at that time the reason why i think at least my hot take theory as to why john ham was there was because the el royale was such a prominent it was such a prominent hot spot for people of a time that Maybe this was just one of those routine places where the FBI had listening equipment in there because they were looking for um, socialist or communist dissidents at that time who roamed in like the higher like echelons of like fame during that period. Yeah, my reading on why John Hamm is there um, is about that there's going to be a regime change coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much as far as, like, mm. I feel like this movie literally takes place on the border of the heyday mm. of the uh, Hoover hyper tap frenzy police regime. And I'm not saying we somehow got rid of that. But oh, no, we no, didn't. No, no, no. But just that. We just privatized it. <laughs> yeah. But that public era of it into this public accountability for something like Vietnam and I don't know, I kind of found those things almost ghostly related, mm. where John Hamm's character is basically told to go in and clean it up for no other reason than 
they just well, a it's a shitty hotel now. Like it's literally not going to help them anymore. Yeah. And b with more public outrage comes more scrutiny, and therefore we can't have anything be out in the open, especially when it should be what I would consider an easy job. All he had to do was go in the room, grab the thing. He didn't know that it would be more complicated than that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Okay, this makes, this, but that's this makes a lot I, more sense. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And yeah. then the whole thing is the only reason why he gets killed is because he doesn't do his mission. Well, he doesn't even – he doesn't listen to his superior. That's what I mean. Like he yeah. d- doesn't do his job. He, Because he's a hero, quote-unquote, he decides you know to go, which I love too. Um, that that's – it's like a literal directive and he just – nope. Just goes knocks on the door. Which is – which no, I mean it makes sense. Yeah, uh, but it's just it's one of those things where rewatching the movie, you can just trace his death mm-hmm. from that phone call because you don't know exactly that that's going to be the outcome. You know, you think really also that leads to a lot of other people's demise too. Correct. I mean, that's because kind of the original have, sin of the film would have what's her name been able to call call if she wouldn't have been untied by him? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, no, I mean that's the original sin of the whole night, so to speak. Yeah. Um. So I'll get really quickly into something I didn't care for okay wolf rape no i like that <laughs> and i condone it um we'll, we'll get to that <laughs> i guess it's not even something that i won't care for it, it's just this um something i will say and this is the worst form of criticism but i'm gonna do it and say something i wish the film was rather than what it ended up being but i just want to put it out there is that i thought the first hour really set up a movie in which allegiances and plot and character motivation were going to be interestingly and almost spiritually tied to this theme of being on the border, depending on if you were in the Nevada room or if you were in the California room. But that's pretty much dropped. They pretty much stay on it one side. It was a side. cool gimmick yeah. when Miles is laying it out. And I, in my own head, I was like, oh, I would totally go to a hotel like that, even if it was a shitty hotel, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so it's like I kind of understand that it was also kind of a remnant of a bygone era. But sorry, you're calling your movie with El Royale in the title. You're setting it up with characters in the very first half hour, very distinctly walking in in a very certain way. Um, the lo- location seems almost after the fact. It, it is after the first 30 minutes. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm paying attention, and um, Jeff Bridges and her come in on different uh, sides of a line, mm-hmm. whereas uh, Dakota Johnson's character walks on the line. Um, and there's more to that and whatever. Which so does Chris Hemsworth when he comes in that later. I, yeah, I was going to say. But but, it, but it's inconsequential at that it point. It is. And I thought, like, there is more to another movie we referenced earlier, uh, The Hateful Eight. There is more to that speech about literally dividing the cabin into north and south, even though that's not even adhered to physically. But there's more to that speech and that than there is to this component where we see maps, diagrams, speeches. Uh, it, there's just a lot. It's much ado about nothing. And that part... <laughs> slightly disappointed me. Now, the movie we got, I certainly enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just kind of wished that if someone was going to get my dick hard like that, that they were going to actually finish the job. Well, the other thing that I will say, I was... Look at you, of, Tucson. <laughs> that I was... No, Please don't. Hoping. <laughs> I'm locking eyes. Uh, not that I was hoping for, necessarily. Put those horse blinders on. <laughs> don't speak of those ever again. Uh... 
But the idea that all of the action that happened on the Nevada side related to that and then everything. I mean, the California side of the hotel was really like they should have just had this film be in Reno and just had that kind of thing. Because the separation thing, I will agree with you, was really not important to the story whatsoever. But you would think that it was going to be sure, in that first 20 minutes. It was, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was like ready, and I was like, "Oh man, are we gonna get some kind of cool like reveal that anyone who stayed on that side did so for a reason?" I mean, obviously we knew about the money and that it had to be, but like you know, some, but no, no, none of that. Which, once again, that what the movie isn't is not something that you should necessarily judge the movie by. But I do think the movie unfortunately sets itself up to be about something like that, and doesn't quite commit to that. Yep. So I previously mentioned Wolf Rape. And we need to get to this, because this was a part of the film that felt extremely out of place to me. Uh, the story that Miles is telling, and I get we're going for shock factor here, because he's talking about all the things he's seen while being this creepy uh, person who has to view all these things in the hotel while trying to get information for management. Um but the fact that they decided to go with a man who tied down a wolf and then got naked with an erection and laid next to him. Uh, yeah, nothing sexual happened, though. Um, that was so out of place for this film. So and to it, me? It was just, like, I, myself and as I saw this, my wife, Emily, and we both looked at each other during that. And we're like, that. we've been there. Yeah. I mean, seriously. <laughs> got very red. Um, Boy, do we have egg on our face. <laughs> it just, it, it, in this kind of film, that kind of shock storytelling was very out of place. And I, I, I just, I just can't wrap my head around how that ended up in this film. I, I have an idea. And this is like a legit idea, not like <laughs> one of my jokes. Uh, dead serious mm-hmm. um i think that drew goddard was afraid to say anything about pedophilia it felt like that was like he was like i've seen mistresses i've seen drugs and unfortunately that's one of the things where your head would go to i've it. seen sea beams but glittering like, in the darkness of the ton gates okay what what is that from what is that from yeah <laughs> i love how offended he got what is that from i honestly have no idea what you're talking about either are so. you that's from Blade Runner. Okay, oh. I've only seen Blade Runner once. That's Roy Batty's like famous ending line. I, I mean, thought, Tears from the Rain. That's all I got. That's just saying. I, I don't know that whole. I think his character poem. is one of the most overrated characters of all time in cinema. So, again, not gonna get any help from me on you, that one. Here's the thing, though. Sorry, buddy. Oh, Suzanne's leaving. That's fine. Hopefully a squirrel didn't run over his car. That'd be like me thinking that someone knows every line that Tom Cruise says in Magnolia. Like, just because I know that offhand and repeat it to women daily. Um, I, I, protect, I Protect the cock. <laughs> I don't know that I would necessarily take umbrage with anyone, uh, uh, you know. Hey, two sounds back. What am I doing? I'm sitting here we're, we're, quietly we're... judging you. Anyway. Yeah. Um. So pedophilia was pedophilia. off limits because if he hadn't reported it, he would have been looked at as a horrible monster. I think actually that's kind of the thing is like we can accept, you know, a lot of the things he says, but like that would have been a step too far. So obviously, especially now that we know the ending of the movie where we have to have sympathy for him, I genuinely think it was like, what can I do that's not pedophilia? That's not something I haven't said already. Oh, bestiality. But I don't want to put my whole dick in that pond. Let's just put a toe in. Huh. 
Thank you, John. Um, That's actually what I think. Yeah. Uh, I will say, though, about that, the way that the story is told is actually fucking brilliant, in my opinion. Because the fact that he starts by saying, I saw somebody lay with a wolf. And when I heard that, uh, I'm sitting in the theater, you know, just slowly munching on my popcorn, laying back in my seat. And, of course, my ears and eyes perked up because I was like, what? Red Rocket. What did that man just say? Yeah. Uh, And then the story continues, and it uh, goes from zero to 60 very quickly. Um, And then he tries to, like, play it cool at the end of the story by saying, well, he didn't actually rape the wolf. And it was like, ah. It wasn't sexual, but it wasn't not sexual. Yeah, I thought that was stupid. Yeah. I just felt like he would have either said it or not. He's trying to say weird shit that he's seen. Even if he didn't rape the wolf, wouldn't you just be like, I've seen a man rape a wolf. You're, you know, you're begging for your life. Now, you don't need to downplay that shit. Before we get off the wolf rape scene, the wolf rape. Oh, we're going to get off the to it. The wolf rape scene. Uh, Nick, you said that there was a wolf uh, bestiality yeah. moment Do, in uh, Cabin in the Woods as Drew well. Drew Goddard. Sorry, but clearly he has a wolf fetish. <laughs> uh, the Cabin in the Woods. Famously, because actually that's one of the best scenes of that movie, when uh, the blonde girl is dared to make out with the wolf, and oh, she yeah. does, and that wolf, as inanimate as he is, is clearly into it. Um, and now in this movie, we have a story about a man lying with wolves. And let me tell you something, Kevin Costner was not in sight, my friend. No, 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 no. This was no dancing. This was full-on fucking. Thank you for that. Sometimes, Nick. What? I'm just. You're in awe. That's a word. That's only one that, way, to, only way a, to put it. That's a word yep. for it, I guess. What did? Okay, moving on. What did we think about uh, the final elongated scene? I know that we pretty much all said that the very end of it is exciting and has some interesting reveals. But it goes on for a little too long. At the same time, though, um, I actually love the idea of them all being tied to the table at the roulette table. And uh, the fact that he actually goes through with murdering somebody off of that, I thought was also wonderful. What would you think of the dance? The what? When you put on Deep Purple. Eh, I got to say, I thought the music cues were weak. I like Deep Purple. I mean, I like a lot of the songs that are in this movie, mm-hmm. but it felt like someone not knowing how Tarantino does it, so to speak. Yeah. Because Tarantino plays a song, for example, I mean, take Reservoir Dogs, not his most popular film, but take that uh, movie. Certainly his first film. Certainly. Certainly. Um, but you take that movie, and all the songs are basically shoehorned in with the uh you know, radio gimmick, Mm -hmm. and yet every single one, you can remember the scene in which those songs played. I don't think I can remember a single song that played in this movie or remembered exactly. I mean, I know Deep Purple played during that scene. Because they actually made note of that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But none of these songs stood outside of the scene's context itself. And for that, I felt like he was aping without monkeying. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. But... I, uh, <laughs> but I, I generally thought that the music cues were weak. Yep. Like I liked them while I was watching them, mm-hmm. but uh, I thought he could have tried a little harder. Yeah. But the scene itself, yeah, I will say one thing: 
pretty much liked it as far as I liked the progression, even if I wasn't a big fan of the Chris Hemsworth beginning of it. I will say I thought it was a little lazy to have Chris Hemsworth basically start killing off characters due to gambling. Certainly, it's not that it's unfounded within the context of this place, you know, but it just kind of felt like we need to have characters die off. Once again, I felt like Prince Hensworth was only doing things because the script told him to do it, not because it was an organic, which up until Chris Hemsworth, fucking hell, why is his name that hard to say? Yeah, Prince Hemsworth. Up until Chris shows up, um, I felt like everything was so taut in uh, its connection to everything else. Like this little ripple did accidentally spill over to that one, and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until he showed up, which I guess is kind of the point, that he's this ball of chaos <laughs> that shows up and burns that mother down. But it just kind of fell flat on his face, other than Miles and the priest. Yeah, um, I'd agree with that. I I like the way that the finale plays out. I like the idea that... Um, <laughs> Every character really murders one person in the film, and that's about it, hmm. which is very interesting. That's interesting. Like, even Miles, uh, he shoots some of the goons who are really just throwaway characters. Right, right. But he really only kills one of them, and I, I, I just like the idea that everybody is basically responsible for something without throughout this film yeah. that have stakes to it. Um, and... I really did just enjoy that final scene um, and the revelations that happened throughout it. I love the idea of uh, the entire place burning down at the end. I thought that was wonderful. Um, And it was, I think, the reason why this part of the story worked so well for me is because it was kind of slow played early on. But the Vietnam tie-in tie in, and the fact that it became so prevalent in the final scene, I thought was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I think it related perfectly to the story, in my opinion, just because this elongated conflict, which really had uh, no... No discernible beginning or end in sight. Correct. And also had, at least from America's point of view, no real... There's no winning here. No winning... And it's a literal, uh, shall we say, invasion of a battle that's not yours. That is true. You know, like, I mean, that's kind of what Chris Hemsworth is in this conflict, so but to speak. Every, every, every single character and every single archetype in this film basically uh, gets shitted on, uh, which I love because uh, religion and cults and all that can all just go away because... They present nothing of real substance, uh, in my opinion. And this that's film, a take. I know, right? Yeah, this guy. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's just the way. I mean, cults, yes. Religion is not. A lot of people are very yeah. religious. So yeah. the cult part, I couldn't understand. Oh, I, I told. I'm, I'm totally there with you in the cult part. Well, no, and I understand why. That's pretty much the general consensus. Oh yeah. But at the same time, um, I do like that this film takes a stand on it and. Uh, Again, the the fact that Vietnam becomes such a prevalent part of the story in the end, uh, I love that tie, and I love that really now watching back on the film, um, it is perfectly placed within the environment for which this story lives in. Yeah, no, I'm with you in the sense that that's why I want to rewatch the film right away. I mean, not 
maybe before it leaves theater, but definitely I can't wait to revisit it with that framework in mind. Because I really don't think, obviously, with Miles' revelation, it's not really apparent until uh, the third act how important that conflict is to the Mm -hmm. central storyline. I will say... I was not a fan of the final scene. Okay. I thought that was pointless. The final, like the denouement scene? Yeah. Okay. The Jeff Bridges going to see her uh, perform. I'm a big believer in that stories like the, like the Hateful Eight and this and 12 Angry Men, whatever. When you're setting your uh, thing, even if you have flashbacks, that's fine, whatever. But your conflicts, your actions, your whatever... You have a, you better have a damn good reason for continuing your movie past it, and that was a one minute, just kind of nothing. Mm. From the moment he showed up, we knew what he was going to do in the next one minute, so I didn't need to see him go do it. Uh, it just kind of was pointless. Okay, I didn't feel that their connection was. I thought the whole point of the whole movie up until that point was that they didn't really make a connection, like. They agreed to be business partners, which I thought was very American of them, so to speak. You know, putting, Damn American of well, them. But, you know, uh, putting aside their differences and moral outrage at whatever the one or does or does not stand for in order to almost illicitly, <laughs> you know, gain capital. Like, I thought that make, made perfect sense. Capitalism but, is the great mediator and healer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. But for for them to extend their relationship, and I don't mean that romantically, but just their whatever past that just felt a little too cute. Mm. And I I'll disagree with you, but that's okay. What did you like about? Uh, I liked that. I feel like he was a very. Do you think he was changed? No. Okay. I think he was a very lonely and depressed person okay. who just got out of prison and uh, just. That was the first person he connected with? No, just oh, literally sorry, his... I'm speaking own... for you. That's okay. You're good. I mean, it's probably the way to go because, you know, I'm not very good at speaking. Uh, but neither are you, so, you know, we're all in the same boat. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Uh, he's been in prison. This is really the only thing he has to do. He obviously has some sort of dementia or Alzheimer's. Maybe he forgot. No. Yeah. No. And he was like... <gasps> I remember you. Why does he sound like Big Daddy from... from Why doesn't he? I don't know. Anyway. Get your ass up out of here. Dream like Jerry. So... Did you I, just order us a pizza, by the way? No. <laughs> I think you did. I didn't. <laughs> I think you did. No, I didn't. Be cooler if you did. <laughs> Fuck you. It's, not, it's, like, it's a line from Days of Confusion. Yeah. I know. It's yeah, right. be, be cooler if you did. Fuck not... you for referencing Days of Confusion. Son of a bitch. No, I just thought it was a nice callback to the moment they had earlier in the film, and I really do think that Jeff Bridges has nowhere else to go. I will say, I'll give it credit for this, which is that... Like as an actor or as a, as a character? <laughs> no, his character. What? Okay, because I'll, I'll, you just said... Yeah. I'll pivot two degrees towards okay. you now and say that one good thing about it is that for a movie based on uh, inauthenticity, as far as not knowing where people lie until you watch the entire thing, mm-hmm. it is somewhat nice to get confirmation as to the humanity that may or may not lie within him. But that he didn't like just try to like steal the money or right. something like, like that. Like that he was genuine and 
of in what he did by the end of the movie. I and mean. he was actually being serious when he said, I was just going to drug you so you didn't struggle against me right. getting my money. So actually, I wasn't trying to murder and rape you. I will say, in theory, I actually kind of am okay. With, I'm, I made peace with that scene okay. within this last five minutes. Okay. I still don't really need to see it. Yeah. I, it could have been relegated to a comic tie-in. Uh, <laughs> Um, wouldn't that be quite a serious anyway thematic thematic that happens all the time it's like uh, Solo oh don't you want to know how Woody Harrelson became a thing anyway yeah it was much better than why are you shaking your head this is not a not unusual thing Continue. It was much better than the send-off from the Sully movie with Aaron Eckhart saying, well, I hope that the crash comes in June next time. <laughs> but that was comedy, though. That was comedy. You literally almost went to jail. <laughs> so, like, are you are you aware of what is going on right now, Did sir? they actually almost go to jail? Because we talked about this, about then, that like, film, that, that nobody was really yeah. out to get them. <laughs> Nobody's on the other side no of this No one's issue. on the other side of this issue. <laughs> Oh, man. I wish at the end of that movie, when Aaron Eckhart said that, we just cut to the crowd and Julia Roberts is just going. <laughs> and then they ride off on a motorcycle together. Wow, that's great. Oh, is that a reference from Aaron Brockovich? Yes, it is. Okay. Wow. Where'd you get this mustache? <laughs> anyway. I don't know what the fuck is going Aaron Brockovich. It's a good film. He's really good in that movie. Oh, that's good. That's, uh, it's your guy, isn't it? Steven? Yeah. Yeah, Steven Soderbergh. Yeah. My least favorite Steven Soderbergh film, and I still give it three out of five. Oh, Got a wow. great Albert Finney performance. Mm-hmm. I know Jennifer, Jennifer, I know Julia Roberts is like the thing to talk about because that movie came out and she was hot shit, and for good reason, but honestly, I'm more impressed when I rewatch it by Finney and uh, Aaron Heckard in yeah. that movie. Aaron Heckard's career is really went in the toilet. Yeah. It's really hot there in the late 2000s. Yeah, with, more uh, like poo face. Okay, so let's go to ratings here, guys, because we're talking about Pooh Face and Aaron Eckhart now. Uh, I'll go I feel first. like we're just getting started. Yeah. I'll get started with our ratings, and I will give this a three and a half out of five, as I thought this was a quite delightful film that had some pretty fun, small comedic elements to it, uh, which we didn't really touch on, but they were definitely there throughout the film, although it was definitely uh, cool played, which I thought was wonderful. And at the same time, um, I thought for what this film was trying to be, that it, for the most part, succeeded in every uh, facet of what its storytelling was. Um, and also, too, I thought the authenticity of the feeling between the characters was actually really well done in this film. When, again, the that was not the main part of what this film was trying to be, at least on my reading of it. Um, wonderful production design, I thought. And also, at the same time, Wonderful camera work and editing throughout. So three and a half out of five for bad times at the El Royale. I'm going to give this a three out of five. I really enjoyed this film. Um, I would definitely recommend it. and I'll probably watch it again. I think what I enjoyed the most about it is that it feels like a, a pastiche and a send off of an era and the beginning of a nascent new one. Like the, the fact that the El Royale burns down at the end. I feel like that is not just a, a, a aesthetic choice. It's not just an aesthetic choice. It's a thematic, like sort of like closing out of this doc. Jeff Bridges' character, like this is him, like closing that chapter. The thing that's been like haunting him is that bag of money 
and like his brother's murder and like being able to finally put that behind him and to live out what what the rest of his life is what 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 life he do, does have left and basically starting anew out of the ashes of the old and yeah i think yeah i just really vibe with that and yeah this was a good movie yeah, I'm pretty much echoing what you guys have said. I, I give it a three and a half out of five as well. I would basically say that this would, like, this is so my shit uh, as far as taking place in one location with a very realized geographical, uh, you know, blueprint, so to speak, uh, all over one night as characters basically just talk to each other. I mean, yeah, there's the action, but most of it is trying to wade through the bullshit and whatnot. So that's the only reason why I kind of undervalue it a little bit is that I kind of wish Drew Goddard had basically picked a lane between the micro and the macro. While I think that there was some potent action in the micro space of this hotel, and I definitely think some of the larger themes in the macro world landed, I don't know that either one of them got their full due for having to exist alongside each other. I basically kind of wanted it to be one or the other. And what we get is certainly a good marriage of the two, but unfortunately I don't think it's going to last, and I give this marriage five years. And the kids are going to be upset, and they'll probably grow up to be heroin addicts and (laughs) go in and out of foster systems because the parents are selfish and they actually don't want kids, and they just made that mistake. But, um, yeah, I thought it was okay. Uh, three and a half out of five stars. Okay. That was a very interesting finale you had there, Nick. Kind of like the film. Sorry, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? This fucking episode has just been like a fucking roller coaster with you. It's every episode. What the fuck? So, uh, on our next episode for a Film Tank... We are going to be chatting about uh, the new Halloween film. Halloween. (laughs) Uh, The return of Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. What number film is this? It doesn't matter because this is a retelling. It's it's number... uh, It's technically number two, even though it's the... I mean, yeah, sequentially... Seventh? No. uh, It's it's like... Sixth? Well, I mean, if you include the zombie ones, it's like nine, right? No, it's... Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's eight non-zombies, so it would be nine if oh. you don't include those. Okay. It's two if you follow the continuity laid out by this film. Correct. And here's the thing, though. If this is a sequel, which by all accounts it is, mm-hmm. why do you why did you name your film the exact same title? Yeah, it's kind of weird. Now, like, I, 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 I'm not even trying to be pedantic. I'm saying, like... This is not a remake, so you can't call it the same. Mm-hmm. So why? It's a, it's a soft reboot. You, no, it's slash supposed sequel. to be a sequel, and it's a so, soft reboot of a sequel. Supposedly, <laughs> it is supposed to be the definitive ending to this story. Right. So it's like, oh, did you see Halloween? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you see the sequel, Halloween? Yes. <laughs> that is very bizarre. Holy shit! We live in 2018. We do. So yeah. anyway, I mean, I mean, I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, um, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I have a feeling I, I – you know what? I'm going to write down some ratings. I'm gonna I do got a, a feeling. I'm going to do some random predictions here between random. you, me, and Kenny. Okay. What do you think? Oh, you want me to put them on air? Please. 
All right, without having seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's do this. I'm going to say, Alex, three out of five stars, because I don't think you're going to hate it. Okay. Based on what I've heard about it, based on what I think about it, and I know you don't hate the first one, So, but I don't think it's really going to float your boat. Okay. But I think there's going to be at least some scenes that you love type thing. Okay. Kenny, I think it's going to be like four out of five. If not higher. I was going to say, I'm leaning toward a four and a half. He leans higher. But I don't want to give it that much credit, so I'm going to say four. Okay. And I'm going to say right now, if I just had to chew the rating based on a movie I've never seen before. Oh, boy. I would You're like most of the internet. Yep. I'm thinking three and a half. Like I'm, There's really no way I'm going to dislike this movie as long as it's baseline competence for what it is. What about Tucson? You know, I think Tucson's going to be an asshole about it. No, I'm just kidding. But actually, based on what I have heard, I do think there's going to be something that are going to be off-putting to you. And I would say you're going to give it a two and a half. Really? Because I think you would see it and like it, but also not necessarily see the value in it if it's 40 years later as to why this version. I mean, I've seen the original Halloween. I like that film. No, I know. Um, (laughs) I'm saying because you like that film. Okay. Based on something that I've heard, that you will be very lukewarm on this one. Are there a lot of awkward moments in this film? There, so. I will say one thing I have heard, that there are laugh-out-loud moments. Like, this is a comedy in a lot of scenes. and Not like in a so-scary-you-laugh, but like a genuine, clearly Danny McBride wrote this movie type moment. Oh. Sassy? Hmm. So... You heard it here. If you go in the order of what I just said, it would be Toussaint, that's, Alex, me, Kenny. That's not the vibe I got sounds, from sounds the trailer. Over. Not from the trailer, but all the reviews have been very pointed to point out that this is a uh. comedy in a lot of ways. Um, what you call it? Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter podcast for a living. Uh, yeah. So anyway, just I'm just throwing out random guesses. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of this. Okay. So we will find out uh, if I get every single rating right. You guys have to give me a hug. Okay. I mean, I'll I, I give you a hug now if you want. I mean, oh, you slut! <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> So, th- looking forward to that on our next episode and Tucson and Nick embracing. Uh, if you ever want to get in touch... Don't walk away from me. You can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. From Nick Cheney, Tucson Egan, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to us here on Film Tank. We'll be catching up with you next time. Can I just say I like John Hamm's character's casual racism in this movie? Oh, my God. I remember that now. It was more than casual. Yeah, that's a very I say casual because I, I guess I'm opening up a whole other thing. But really quickly, um, I was refreshed at the fact that someone made a period piece and didn't and included an African-American character and didn't basically treat them like shit. Because, quote-unquote, that's how history sees it. Because mm-hmm. I'm not saying that she's not marginalized in some ways. Right. But the most 
racial tension we feel is in one of his very off-the-cuff lines about, I bet you know some gals that are in the housekeeping uh, business. <laughs> yeah. But, like, that's, like, the apex of it. So I like that she stands beside her. And even then, he's really just playing up a, uh, a cover. Yeah. yeah. Film tank rumper. <laughs> <laughs>